Lego My Burrito, Chipotle's attorney Andrew Klubach walks us through the securities class action filed against his client and one of my favorite stops. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, listeners. Hope you're having a great day out there. Today, we've got a great episode for you. We're talking about burritos. Chipotle, of course, one of my favorite places to go uh, to grab a burrito. But uh, this is a case about securities. It's a class action. And we have the attorney who represented Chipotle in this matter, one of the attorneys. His name is Andrew Klubach. He joins us today. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Lawrence. Glad to be here. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful you're here. Andrew, before we get into the meat of the matter of this uh, case, I have the most important question to ask you. uh, How do you prefer your burrito at Chipotle? That's a good question. I have my own special approach is half carnitas, half chicken, black beans, all the veggies, and uh, the hottest salsa they have. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So uh, yeah, I go the chicken route. I do the burrito, not the bowl, because I uh, I just don't believe in the bowl. But uh, I do the black beans, the rice. I do a, a scoop of regular salsa, corn. Got to do two scoops of hot salad, because I'm not a bar... Uh, the little lettuce salad stuff, because I'm not a barbarian. And of course, the guacamole, but delicious place to go. So Yeah, it's terrific. I, I do a teeny little bit of rice. I say mostly black beans, just a little bit of rice. And the rest uh, makes itself. It's delicious. That sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. And I will say when uh, we first won this case, I I celebrated at Chipotle and posted it on Facebook. So definitely there's no better way to celebrate a victory in a lawsuit than to go to Chipotle. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And you're making me hungry too. So, well, anyway, let's get to the case. You know, I understand this was a securities class action and I understand it's not quite as simple as that, which you're going to help walk us through here in a little bit. But uh, why don't we start at the beginning? I know you represented Chipotle. Tell us about the uh, the other party, the plaintiff appellants that were part of this case. Sure. In in a typical securities class action, what happens is that shareholders file a lawsuit. And under the current rules that date back about a little over 25 years, basically, it, it, it really doesn't matter who files first. Whatever shareholder files the first lawsuit, there is a period of time where any other shareholder can come forward and say that they would like to be a part of the lawsuit. And ultimately, the court picks a shareholder or a couple shareholders to be what's called the lead plaintiffs. Usually, it's those individuals who had the largest ownership of stock and therefore the largest potential losses. And in this case, the lawsuit was originally filed by an individual shareholder of Chipotle, but ultimately uh, two institutional investors, one an asset management company and the other a labor union pension fund that owned Chipotle. They came forward and they acted as the lead plaintiff. Yeah, and that's interesting because uh, when I when I was reading the uh, well, I was reading the decision of the court, the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and uh, they revealed in the facts that originally Susie Ong was the the lead plaintiff, and then eventually she ceded, as you were saying, to Metzler and Trust, kind of the short form for that arrangement. But uh, why was that? Why why did she suddenly cede leadership of the case? Well, it it really was because the other two investors came forward and they had larger stakes. They were larger shareholders, and basically the court appoints who it thinks will be the, quote, best representative for the, for the would-be class. Usually, the key issue is whoever owns the most stock. So whoever owns the most stock gets to be the lead plaintiff, typically. In this case, these two institutional investors had a lot more stock that they own in Chipotle than, than the individual of Mizong. 
You know, one of the things that jumped out to me, uh, I'm not a trial attorney, and so this jumped out at me right away. There were so many amended complaints. I think last time I counted, it was three. So there was the original complaint, and then it got amended twice. And there was an attempt for a third amended complaint. And I realized this involves securities issues, so naturally complicated. But even so, is that unusual for there to be so many amended complaints in a case like this? Uh, it's certainly typical to, for there to be at least one, and often there are two. Three or four gets increasingly rare. And ultimately, in this case, the plaintiffs actually filed three separate complaints and previewed a fourth complaint that they told the court they could file or they were thinking about filing, which the court basically uh, analyzed as well. So effectively, they had, as the appellate court found, four bites at the apple to try to be able to state a claim that could survive uh, initial motions. And the appellate court found that they did not do that. Well, and from my understanding of the matter, that definitely added some uh, time on the clock for these matters. So how long has this case been going on for? Yeah, the case was originally filed in January 2016 in federal court in New York. And with COVID, I've lost track of time, but I think it's uh, September of 2020. So we're coming up on uh, you know five years as of January. That's quite a long time for a case to, be, to go forward at this stage. To put it into perspective, this case was filed in January of 2016. In July of 2017, there was another stock drop. Chipotle had another uh, stock drop, and another set of plaintiffs filed a whole other case in Denver. That case was filed and fully decided and dismissed. Chipotle won that case by March of 2019. So this case in New York, the, the Ong case, has gone on long enough for you know a whole other security stock drop case to be filed and completely disposed of more than a year ago. Well, I want to get into these uh, these amended complaints and how the court kind of shot these down one at a time. But I think what would be uh, instructive is if if you could share with us some of the key facts and key allegations that were part of this case as it was filed. Well, this case really um, revolves around some illness issues that occurred, some some illness outbreaks that occurred that were associated with Chipotle back in the summer and fall of 2015. So just about five years ago. Uh, there were some you know, highly publicized outbreaks. There was a situation where an employee may have been sick and got some other customer sick, perhaps. And then there were some instances of supposedly uh, foodborne illnesses with some ingredients that may have been tainted at the time. And, you know, sort of the Murphy's Law, these all, you know, Chipotle has 1,900 restaurants. And a handful of incidents all sort of happened around the same time. That led the stock of Chipotle to fall. At the time, the stock was about $750 or so a share, and it fell down to, a, over the course of several months, down to about $550 a share. So really, the lawsuit was all about those folks who had invested in Chipotle stock, who were holding the stock, who claimed that they lost value of their stock holdings as a result of uh, you know, something to do with these food illnesses. By the way, to put that in context, today, Chipotle stock, I just checked it before, it's trading at over $1,400. So anybody who had Chipotle stock then and stuck with the company and, and got through those, those bad few months and, and held the stock to today is doing extremely well. But back then when the stock dropped, you know, what, what happened to Chipotle is what happens to most companies. These days, when a, when a company's stock drops you know, above a certain percentage, it's almost automatic that a lawsuit is filed. You know, in the old days of securities litigation, Almost all securities litigation revolved around 
mistakes in the financials, either mistakes or intentional fraud in the financials. You know, if you think about Enron, the allegations in a case like that were that the officers um, had, had cooked the books and they had told investors, you know, one thing about their financials. And in reality, they knew it was a very different story internally. At least those were the allegations. And that's sort of the classic case of, of securities fraud historically, which is, you know, the financials are misstated either unintentionally or intentionally. And therefore, the shareholders who invested believing that, say, the profits were, you know, $10 million, and it turns out, no, the profits are $5 million, they may have a claim to recover the value of the difference in their stock when the stock goes down. That's a typical securities fraud case. In the last few years, really, uh, you know, Chipotle five years ago was one of the one of the key new kinds of cases. There's been a series of cases called event-driven securities litigation. And event-driven securities litigation is basically, you know, by one view, anything bad that happens to a company, some people might try to make it into a securities fraud case. COVID's a good example. You know, your 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 business is down because of COVID. A plaintiff might say, oh, gee, you failed to to properly warn investors that if there was a global pandemic, you would lose a lot of business, you know? And they might argue that that's a securities fraud case. You should have warned everybody when they bought your stock that maybe there could be a pandemic and you could lose a lot of business. That's something that we would call an event-driven litigation, a taking something that happened that was a bad event, turning into securities fraud. And it's either you failed to warn people that this could happen and could affect your stock, or after it happens, you say things that are not accurate about how it's affecting your business. You know, if you, if you are a company and, and COVID has you know, destroyed 80% of your business and you come out publicly and you say, oh, everything's great and we still have the exact same level of business we had before COVID and there's, there's no problem at all, that could be the basis of a securities fraud case. So, so those are uh, all event-driven litigation. And in this case, what we had was obviously a very unfortunate event. Some illnesses that were associated with Chipotle caused a lot of bad publicity. The stock dropped. And the plaintiff's lawyers then tried to turn this into a securities fraud case by claiming both that Chipotle had failed to properly warn investors this could happen and by complaining about some of the statements that Chipotle made in the wake of these events. You know, when I read the the facts of the case, which were supplied by the plaintiffs, I didn't get that same conclusion that they may have gotten when they when they filed the suit. It just seemed like there was, a, you know, there, there was a little bit of a change in the supply chain, and it looked like Chipotle was just trying to, it was either because of regulations or it was because they were trying to be a little more efficient, were uh, decentralizing some of their food preparation. They used to do it in these centralized kitchens, and they were trying to do that more in the restaurant. They discovered that probably wasn't the best process. And, you know, when I was looking at this in the timeline that was provided, it didn't really seem like if you're running 1900 stores, it didn't seem like something that would show up as this bright blip that you would want to give a warning about. It just kind of seems like kind of the, the normal course, unfortunately, of, of food processing and food prep. Is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's a good read of the complaint. And remember, the way these cases work is that the plaintiffs write up a complaint. And at the initial stage of the case, and even though it's been more than five years, we're, we were still at the initial stage, a court just looks at what the plaintiffs say in their complaint, and they say, okay, I'm going to assume every single thing that the plaintiffs are saying is true. Whatever bad things they claim happen, I'm going to assume that's true. And the question for the court is, if you assume all that's true that they're saying, even if that's true, does that create a securities fraud? liability. And in this case, the court said, look, even if you take everything they say about what, how Chipotle prepared food and what they said about how they prepared food and the warnings they gave, even if, if you take everything the plaintiffs are saying is true, 
the court sort of had the same reaction you did, which is, okay, you know, these 1900 restaurants, there were a handful of incidents. By the way, Chipotle warned folks that that things could happen because it does have 1900 different restaurants and, and thousands of individual suppliers of food. And uh, the court ultimately said that is that is not securities fraud. It, it's, you know, unfortunate. It might affect other regulatory issues, but it's it's certainly not securities fraud. I wanted to get into these these complaints here. And so the court seemed to shoot these down on procedural grounds each and every time. So can you walk us through that series of complaints, the original complaint on into that that second amended complaint? Yeah, actually, what the court found was that the plaintiffs hadn't properly challenged any statements that you actually could consider to be false, certainly not materially false, and that the plaintiffs had also not showed that Facebook intentionally tried to commit securities fraud. That's called Sienter. So the court really struck it down on all those different grounds. And basically what the plaintiffs had said was, first they said that you know Chipotle didn't sufficiently warn people that, that maybe uh, there could be sicknesses in their restaurants. And, and as it turned out, Chipotle had lots of warnings like that. But then they said, well, Chipotle made this switch. Chipotle used to prepare almost all uh, of its ingredients at a central commissary and then ship them out. And Chipotle prides itself on being a, a fast, casual place, but also serving very fresh Mexican food. And there's a real push for people to have locally sourced products. And so Chipotle made increasing changes to using local suppliers to try to have that you know, farm-to-table ingredient that, that people really want. Problem is, when you have 1,900 restaurants and you have 10,000 suppliers, it can be a little more challenging than if you just have one central supplier or several central suppliers. And ultimately, that effort to have a national network of locally sourced products may have contributed to some outbreaks and eventually Chipotle changed its policies and, and, and moved away from that. But the real question for the court was, was making that change somehow securities fraud as opposed to, you know, maybe a, a good effort that didn't work out or an honest effort to try to uh, make their food better. And ultimately, the court found that it was not securities fraud. Well, hopefully uh, our burrito prices won't be going up as a, uh, as a result of this case. I believe they'll be going down because we won the case and we won it uh, uh, pretty early. Uh, we won it at an early stage of the proceeding. We didn't have to go to trial. Hopefully that means that it won't cost Chipotle or its shareholders or its customers uh, really much of anything. <laughs> and like I said, the stock price is now over $1,400. So if you invest in a Chipotle, you're doing great. If you eat a Chipotle, you're doing great. It's a good outcome for everybody. Well, so where does that leave things now, you know, at, in this stage, you know, kind of a typical case, what are the next steps? And then do you foresee any timeline for completion of these matters? As the courts have noted, the plaintiffs already got four different bites at the apple. And the appellate court in New York, it's called the Second Circuit, which governs federal cases in, in New York and a few other states in the area, said, that's enough. Four, four bites is enough. The plaintiffs can't continue to do this. They said there's a trade-off between giving plaintiffs the right to Get, take their best shot, and you're supposed to be liberal in allowing people to, to, to take their best shot and, and take their best stab at things versus having some finality so that defendants, after five years, can finally put cases behind them. And that's what the court said in its most recent decision, that the case is over. Um, the plaintiffs have taken one more stab at that. They've asked for a, a further review of that decision by the entire appeals court in the Second Circuit, and that brief was just filed a few days ago, and we should get a decision probably within the next month as to whether the plaintiffs will get a fifth bite of the apple or a fifth bite of the burrito, I guess, in this case. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. Thanks for discussing this case with us. Uh, thank you very much, Lawrence. Appreciate it.
And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. And also, we'll cite and make available our sources for this episode on our website at LegalTalkNetwork.com. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.